So I never reject the patient. I force the patient to to reject me, but I, I stick to my guns. Now, let's say they're not doing much psychotherapy homework, but they're doing a little bit. Well, and I would tell them, this is fantastic. You brought me this napkin that you wrote some negative thoughts on probably <laughs> before the session. And, but this is good enough, you know, and this will give us a fantastic session that, that we can work on your negative thoughts. And if I can persuade you to do a little of this every day, you'll be on the road to, to rapid recovery. Welcome to the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davy. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol and I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same. Like right now. We're going to be talking in a little bit with Dr. David D. Burns. I like it when people have a middle initial. Lee M. Davy. Doesn't sound the same as it. Dr. David D. Burns. Yeah, he's going to be our guest in a minute. Uh, but before we get there, let's uh, give a little rundown, a little bit of housekeeping of what's going on at 1000 Days Sober Towers. Uh, the first thing is I'm giving away five free one-to-one sessions with yours truly on the subject of how to stop drinking alcohol without giving up the value. Three of them have already been taken by the peeps on our new private Facebook group. So there's two slots left. If you want them, then email Richie, the 1000 Days Sober Community Manager, at 1kdayssober at email, gmail.com. All right, 1kdayssober at gmail.com. Her name is Richie, spelled R-I-T-C-H. E and tell her that you want a session with me. And the first two that get in there, um, we will reply back to you. Okay. And we'll set that up. All right. If you are not a member of our private Facebook group, then same email address, 1kdaysober at gmail.com. Tell Richie that you want in and we will open the doors for you. It doesn't cost any money. And it's a wonderful way to understand more about our philosophy and the work that we're doing and meet some of the faces that we have at 1000 Days Sober, okay? So get on to that. If you are interested in taking the Stride Method for Addictions, the world-renowned Stride Method for Addictions or Stride Method for Relationships, two six-month powerhouses of um, workshops to help you become someone that doesn't drink alcohol, to help you improve your relationship, then go to 1000daysober.com and select a choose yourself call. You'll probably end up on a call with me and I'll be trying to twist your arm behind your back to convince you to put your hands in your pocket and invest in yourself to take those wonderful courses. All right. And finally, if you would like to read our booklet, How to End Your Cravings for Alcohol in Six Steps, then send an email to Richie, 1kdaysober at gmail.com and ask her to send you a copy of that book. Okay, without further ado, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Dr. David D. Burns. Mr. Burns is the author of Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy, a book that sold well over 5 million copies in America alone. Uh, David is an adjunct clinical professor emeritus of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. He has received numerous awards for his research and is known as the Gandalf of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. He's also just released this fantastic book, which I'm now showing on YouTube, which is called Feeling Great, which is really big. And um, yeah, you don't need guns in America. 
Just buy a copy of Feeling Great, and if someone comes to jail, smack them over the head of it. Job done, right? It's a fantastic book and well worth buying if you are a therapist, a coach, or you just want to kind of, quote-unquote, cure yourself of your cognitive uh, distortions. We had a wonderful conversation. Uh, watch the YouTube video. He looks like a cross between Santa Claus and some uh, wishy-washy pirate. But don't let that fool you. The guy has got magic dust in his fingertips, okay? And if you want to learn more about Dr. David Burns, his book and all the work that he does, get over to www.1000daysober.com, head to the podcast page, and there you will find a podcast page just on David Burns. Now, be careful. Make sure you get the right one, all right? So this one that you're looking for is something like how to overcome, how to use CBT to end up feeling great. That's this one because we recently released a golden oldie with David uh, talking about CBT, which we recorded several years ago. Check them both out because this guy is an absolute genius, right? So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up, leave you in the capable hands of Dr. David D. Burns, and I'll be hoping that Richie, our community manager, will be passing on your emails to me very soon. Take care of yourself, folks. It's always a pleasure having you on, David. Always like to talk to you. Tell us... um. Tell us a little bit about your life. Like, I know it's kind of a bit of an expansive question, but how, how, what are the milestones that led to the creation of Team CBT and, you know, eventually the book behind us, Feeling Great? Well, I mean, I, it depends on where, where you want to start, but I never should have gone to medical school. I just want to do therapy with, with people. I should, probably should have gone to psychology graduate school. I dropped out of medical school for a full year on two different occasions. And after I graduated, I didn't really plan to go on to psychiatry because I was just so turned off by the psychiatry I saw during my medical school days. And, uh, uh, you know, it was the hippie era. It was the 1960s. And, you know, a lot of crazy and wild and wonderful things were going on. So I just thought, well, I, you know, I won't go on with medicine. And I was living with a young lady who is now my my wife, and we had met on the streets of Palo Alto in a in a coffee shop. I offered a young lady a ride on my motorcycle, and she said no. And then my wife saw, and she walked past. I said, "Would you like a ride on my motorcycle?" And she said, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> so that that started the the whole thing. And within a week, we were living together. I lived in this little shack that was about. 10 feet wide and 15 feet long and uh, there was no out there was no plumbing or anything there was uh, there were it was next to a parking lot you know a kind of a it was next to a garage behind someone's house and then there was like kind of a little outhouse on the other side of the the parking area where we could take a shower or use the toilet and I was just, you know, rebellious. I was a hippie. My hair was like this, but it was red. I had a big red beard. And and so after I graduated, uh, my wife and I were, were just kind of wandering around. We ended up homeless uh, down in uh, Carmel Valley and, you know, around Carmel, Monterey, California. And we would just, you know, find someone hitchhiking around and someone would say, oh, you can sleep, you know, on my living room floor or something like that. But she was pregnant. We were about to have a baby and we didn't have any money or anything. Mm. And I finally decided that uh, uh, if I do my residency, I still won't know anything, 
but people won't know that. And they'll think I know something because I'm a psychiatrist. <laughs> so they'll pay me to take, talk to me because I, I, I was just counseling people for free that I'd meet them on the beaches, in the beach or in the coffee house. And that, that, that's really what I wanted to do. And but it was hard to make a living, you know, at, when you didn't have any money. My wife didn't have any money. <laughs> we were just hippies. So I called Stanford and I knew that no one would want me for a residency because I was such a horrible medical student. And I, 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 I said, listen, uh, uh, I, it's t- I'm too late for the match again. I don't think anyone would want me anyway. But uh, I, I've decided to do an internship and residency. Do you, is there any, any place that maybe didn't fill up their slots? And they said, oh, Highland Hospital up in Oakland, they, they didn't fill up one of their slots. They'll take any warm body. So why, why don't you talk to them? So I said, hey, that sounds great. So I called this guy at Highland Hospital, and, and he said, if you can make it up here to Oakland, I'll you know, talk to you. And I, I did that, and, and they accepted me into their internship and residency program. And it was actually turned out to be a tremendous experience for me. And then I uh, transferred from there into, into Penn, University of Pennsylvania, and started just really working my butt off the opposite of when I was a medical student. I started publishing papers. I learned how to do research and publish papers. I was winning awards, and I was supposed to stay on the faculty doing brain research on, on this chemical imbalance theory. And I had grants and all of that. But I just knew that I didn't want to spend my life doing that because my own research that we published showed in 1975 that th- it was false theory. It was not true that depression and anxiety result from a chemical imbalance in the brain, this so-called deficiency of this chemical serotonin. And then the patients I was giving all these pills to, very few of them were, were, were recovering. And so I was looking around for something that would work. And then someone told me about Aaron Beck had this kooky new thing he called cognitive therapy. And he had this theory that I thought was utter rubbish that actually <laughs> negative thoughts cause depression. And you could train people to change the way they think, and then they change the way they felt. And I said, this cannot be true. So I started going to his seminar to prove that it wouldn't work. And I started trying, asking him for what, what are techniques? How could I help this? I have this suicidal patient or this seriously depressed patient. What, what should I do? And he said, well, try this technique or try this technique. It was all based on changing these distorted negative thoughts. And lo and behold, the patient started popping like popcorn. They just started getting better really rapidly. And they, the patient said, we want more of this. This is great. This is really working. And I, I, I began to think maybe there's something to this. And eventually, I, I just told the, unit, the medical school, I, I said, I'm going to send my money back for my grant. I, I, don't, I don't want to build a serotonin research laboratory here in the medical school. I don't want to keep pushing pills like, like this. And so I left the university. I stayed on the voluntary faculty, but left the full-time faculty and opened my practice and started treating with people with cognitive therapy. And, and it was just blowing my mind. And I wrote Feeling Good early in my practice because I didn't have many practice patients yet. I was just, you know, so I had a lot of free time and I, and I was so used to working hard in my research. So I said, I'll write a book about this for patients to, so they can read this book while they're in, in treatment. And that's how the book Feeling Good 
came came about and then after after feeling good came out cognitive therapy began to emerge and go all around the world and became the most popular form of psychotherapy in the world and the most researched form of psychotherapy in the world this idea that depression results from distorted thoughts and so then I was just just so happy developing psychotherapy techniques and doing research on how psychotherapy works. And then it culminated in my work the last 15 years or so since we moved, finally returned to Stanford. And I had to wait until all the professors who would remember me had either died or <laughs> retired because I knew, they knew I was going to come back and join even the voluntary faculty. They'd say, you know, you don't want that guy. <laughs> that's that. that's the, the gospel truth. And then <laughs> finally they got a new department chairman who was from Harvard, Alan Schatzberg. And he knew of my work at, in, at, in Philadelphia. He didn't know what a horrible medical student I'd been. He used to invite me up to Harvard every year to teach at Harvard Medical School and teach about the new cognitive therapy. And so I knew he, he would want me back at Stanford. So we were able to move back at Stanford. And then in the last 15 years, this new team therapy, which is kind of like cognitive therapy on steroids, has emerged. And uh, it's just been a fantastically exciting period of my life. Yeah, it's really, uh, I found you, I don't you know, I don't even know how I found you. It was through the podcast chain of stuff. Somebody yeah. mentions your podcast and then you check it out. And then I, I started loving it, particularly kind of the live sessions. And yeah, I thought it was great. I, I have uh, a question. We had great live sessions with the guy named Lee. Similar name to to your own, and he was very powerful and inspirational and and, and moving. I'll never forget that session with Jill and. <laughs> Do you know my Lee. my wife still hasn't listened to it? Uh, she hasn't. Well, well that's only because she, she says she's pissed off for listening to my voice all the time. Why would I want sure. to listen to the hours of it? Sure. Um, but just to let you know, David, right now in this moment. <sighs> We are more connected and more oh, in love wow. than we've ever been. I'm so happy to hear that. That is awesome. Your session was very moving. It was monumental, really. Yeah, I've been having a lot of light bulb moments since that moment. I mean, now, where do you live? Because I, I kept thinking you were in London. Now you're in Los Angeles. I know it's uh, weird to say this, but I got stuck here in Los mm. Angeles. So we do. Um, we've been doing since... My daughter, Zia, turned two. She's four now. We've been doing six months in the U.S. in the winter and six months in the U.K. in the summer. Oh. Because I have a son in the U.K. Oh. That has been the plan. And then we came out here and got stuck because of COVID. Oh, wow. And now I can't go back because Donald won't let me back in. So I'm applying. Oh, wow. Green card at the moment. So we'll see how that gets on. So are you thinking of maybe staying here indefinitely? I'm going to make Los Angeles my home, yeah, or California, yeah. Well, ahead. when you're up in the Bay Area, you should visit our Tuesday training group at Stanford, and you can see Jill and uh, yeah. see see what we're doing. In I fact, would. it's virtual. You might want to just attend it virtually one Tuesday. Let me uh, write myself a note. I would definitely do that. Um, how do you develop your techniques? Because I know in the book, Behind Me Here, Feeling Great, there's uh, 50 techniques, but I know you've got a lot more than that. I'm really curious, how do you develop them? Well, the way I develop them, sometimes it's something I learn, and then I put a spin on it to make it more p powerful. Uh, like I saw this guy, Maxi Maltzby, 
do a demonstration at Penn uh, during my residency, and he was working. He was supposed to be some kind of cognitive therapist and might have trained with uh, Albert Ellis at at one point. And so he treated this inpatient live while the, we residents watched, which was kind of a cool thing. I do it all the time now, but in those days it was it was really rare. And it was this woman with borderline personality disorder, which is a super severe form of depression. And, and I think she was actually hospitalized because she was suicidal because she'd broken up with, with, with her boyfriend and she had the idea that I, I can't be happy without his love. And then Maltzi did this technique I thought would be kind of goofy and worthless to asking her, what would you say to a dear friend who was just like you, who broke up with with her boyfriend? Would, would you say to her, you, you know, you, you can't be happy w- without his love? And she actually bought into it and started coming up with ways to challenge that thought. And she dawned on her, well, I was happy before I met him. So I, it can't be true that, that I need his love to feel happy and fulfilled and other stuff like that. And by the end of the session, she said her, her depression has, had gone. And I, and I couldn't, I could just couldn't believe it. It was so amazing seeing, seeing that, especially with someone so angry and so severe as needing hospitalization for dangerous suicidal urges. But then I took that technique and turned it into a role-playing technique, which makes it even more powerful. I call it the paradoxical double standard technique, where the therapist actually plays the role of a friend of the patient, who's just like the patient, with the exact same thoughts, the exact same problem. And then you verbalize to the patient as another person, you know, I'm a lot like you, and I've got this problem you know, my boyfriend rejected me and I'm telling myself that uh, I'm unlovable and I'll be alone forever and I'll be miserable forever. Does that seem true? And then the patient starts talking you out of it because they're they're more compassionate to someone else than to themselves. And you keep cross-examining the patient until the patient has totally blown the thought out of the water. So some of them were modifications of, of other techniques that already existed. And then, like, exposure's been around since the time of the Buddha, mm. uh, 2,500 years ago, confronting your worst fear. But I've probably created, you know, 35 forms of exposure, cognitive exposure and time travel and hypnotic exposure and all kinds of things. And then a lot of the techniques, I just created myself like when i'm working with somebody and i was always coming up with techniques because patients in the old days used to be very difficult to treat they're kind of resistant and i kept thinking i need more techniques so i would i would sometimes create eight new techniques in one therapy session with with with, with somebody i had a patient once that acquired 118 techniques before she got better she was horribly depressed. I did 117 techniques that failed and the 118th hit it out of the park. So I I just, you know, it just, it just comes to me. And if something helps a patient, I I get this goofy idea and I do something and the patient says, oh, that helps me. Then I give it a name so I can remember what I did. I try it with three or four other patients. And if it helps people, I add it to to my list. But I had a list of 100 in the new book and, and the publisher said the book is too long and I had to take out about 10 chapters, and it's still a big book. Mm. And I took out 
half of those hundred techniques because it was just it was it was too long. And now I kind of wish I'd left them in there. But there's actually about 105 techniques I use regularly. You could definitely have a, like a, a handbook addendum to it for sure. Um, yeah. Um, I'm interested if you go 117 techniques with somebody. How how does that affect you in your mindset? Like you, I mean, oh, I loved it. I loved it. It's like playing chess with the greatest chess player in the world <gasps> until you get a checkmate. But when you get a checkmate, you both win because the patient goes into euphoria from depression or anger or anxiety or whatever. But it was it was always uh, thrilling to me. I never have been tired in therapy, with one exception. And that's uh, if, if I say something that hurts a patient's feelings, that was horrible. Someone felt worse at the end of a session because of something I had said or done. I, it was just it was horribly painful for me. But aside from that, I love therapy. I used to, when I was in full-time practice, I used to see 17 full therapy sessions on Wednesdays alone, just seeing people back to back. And the longer the day went on, the higher and more energized I became. That's uh, that's incredible. You know, like your attitude around it is um, magnificent. I always feel this aura and this energy around you kind of like you're really comfortable about who you are and what you can do. There's no, when I'm around you anyway, or I interact with you, I always like your 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 bluntness and your kindness. Yeah. Um, you do definitely push the edges. Yeah. Like, have you always been like that? Has it been a, yeah. a period in your life where you've been like, I, I like with, with me, I always get caught up with this. I can see where I think somebody is not going where they need to go. And I want to challenge them, but I don't get an A in empathy before I challenge them. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's where you really do, you know, you really succeed, right? Yeah, you got to have that because if you don't have the patient really feeling cared about and and, and liking you, uh, then they're not going to trust you to use really powerful techniques. And I I use, as you experienced yourself, uh, pretty aggressive techniques. And so I need a safety net. And so, as you know, after each session, I have the patient rate me on empathy and helpfulness, and the scales reveal any mistake I made. So and so, I can then talk it over with the patient the, the the next session, and I know I have that that safety net, and the patient knows that if they get ticked off at me because I'm too aggressive, then uh, we'll talk about it the next session and and turn it around and and, and help them feel way way better and acknowledge the, any mistake that I made. But as I've gotten older now, uh, I'm I think I've become. I'm still awfully darn flawed, but more t- tender and, and probably more gentle with people and trying to learn to become more, more sensitive a- a- as well, because that, that's a tremendous thing. I, I, was, I was doing a workshop on Sunday with Jill, a full-day workshop, and um, there was this fellow in the audience. I, there were hundreds of people there, therapists, all, all of them therapists, I guess, and but there were, you know, as you scan the audience, I saw this name Kai Chan, and I said, ah, "Who's that? Sounds vaguely familiar, but I couldn't figure out who it was." But who he was? He was someone who had listened to the podcast by Michael Simpson on vulnerability and, and shyness. It was one of our most popular podcasts, 
and 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 then maybe he had written to me and I, I I answered him and gave him some idea of something he could do to work on his own crippling shyness. And then I think he just wrote the most beautiful endorsement, kind of a thank you letter that Rhonda read on one of our podcasts at the start. We we try to read a, a nice, pleasant email from a podcast listener. And I think that 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 was the thing, that there was something about the Shyness podcast that apparently had helped him fantastically. And then in the workshop, we were asking the therapists how they would create experiments for your patients to test different self-defeating beliefs or distorted thoughts. And one of them was, uh, uh, for shy people, the thought would be, if I smile and say hello to strangers, or if I tell strangers that I've been shy all my life and ashamed of it, and I'm not going to be ashamed anymore, I'm just going to I'm telling people today, and that's that's why I'm telling you. The th- then he had the thought: if I tell that to people, they'll they'll be uh, angry with me; they won't like it. And then he said, so he raised his hands when he said, "What experiment have you cooked up?" And he said, "Well, my experiment would be to to ask strangers this." And he says, "In fact, I've been doing it recently, and by God, it's changing my life." And he became tearful. And I said, well, you know, you could do that experiment right now here in the workshop. There's over 300 therapists here. Why don't you ask them if they judge you or look down on you because of your shyness? And so he asked it, you know, kind of tearfully, but he was super brave. And then people started writing in the chat these fantastic comments. And a woman, Angela Crum from the Feeling Good Institute, was monitoring that, and she started reading them out loud. And they were things like, you know, Kai, you're my hero. You know, if I were younger, I think I'd fall in love with you. I think I'm already in love with you. And, you know, just stuff that was over the top. And every time Angela read one of these comments, he started sobbing stronger and stronger. Uh, He couldn't believe what he was hearing at the end. He, he, He said, this has just been a life a life-changing experience for me. It was such a beautiful moment. I think that was the highlight of the entire workshop. And I have no idea how that links to what we were saying before, but it's a nice story about something. Like <laughs> I, I had a similar one yesterday. We were talking about techniques and stuff. We, we went on to exposure therapy. I was in a coaching group yesterday and there was uh, one of the coaches there. He's one, he's one of these guys who can't undo his top button. So, oh. So everything he's putting out there is very starchy, very gentleman-like, very oh, yeah. proper. But it means he's not... Kind of like me, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and it means, of course, that the story that he's selling in terms of his coaching doesn't mm-hmm. match his aura or how he's representing himself. So, so how is he going to get in, in a client relationship where yeah. they... they they find vulnerability in him and they trust him, right? So yeah. we actually got him to take all of his clothes off on this call. There's like 35 people on the call and he's there oh. completely naked. Oh, awesome. But he's like, he's just overjoyed that he's naked. And then he put his boxer shorts on, went on Facebook Live. Yeah. And to his audience, here I am. Yeah. Here wow. I am, right? And then he started to tell them how he had felt so caged in and so afraid of not being perfect. Yeah, right. For his clients, Ex- exposure therapy, like just do it. I always remember your elevator story. Like, oh yeah, 
I use that all the time. But the woman was like, just let me out. Yeah, yeah. Not enough, like. Right. Yeah. I love shame attacking exercises. You have to be a little careful with them because uh, like any other technique, there's a skill set to doing it. But yeah, shame attacking exercises can be so incredibly liberating for, for people. And of course, I've used a lot of them myself because I've had five different kinds of social anxiety myself. And uh, and it's just such a joy to to free yourself from anxiety and of course depression as as well i used to have camera phobia from the time i was a child and didn't get over it until two years ago see i can smile now to the camera hi hi right but i I couldn't have done that uh, two two years ago that was one of the last forms of social anxiety that I, i i got rid of i used to have crippling public speaking anxiety and all kinds of all kinds of stuff but, um, that helps, right? So huh? I think that helps. Like I was thinking the other day about the disadvantage of really young coaches and therapists is what I like about what I'm able to give to the world is I'm a complete and utter fuck up. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm able to like, ex, I'm able to tap in to so many problems because I've experienced yeah. them. That's, that's the way I am too. I've had 17 <laughs> different anxiety disorders. That's why I was able to write my book, When Panic Attacks. And that's why I love treating anxiety because whatever the person's got, I can say, oh, I had that too. I know how sucky that is. And I can show you how to turn that around really fast. Can I talk to you a little bit about speed of recovery? So Yeah, I, I, have, I, I have trouble with this notion. When I, when I stopped smoking, so le- leading up to when I stopped, I found it very difficult because I was just trying, I just kept saying to myself, stop smoking, stop smoking, stop smoking. And then I read a book and changed my belief systems around smoking. So I, I realized it didn't provide me with any value and suddenly my desire left. And then I yeah. did the same with alcohol. And then I get myself in this trap, if you like, where I'm helping people to overcome a cigarette and alcohol addiction. And they come to me with this story that it is just so complicated and difficult for them to, to overcome. So in a, in a way, I have to build up my infrastructure to, to help them with that. But at the same yeah. time within me, I think to myself that this is really simple to fix. Yeah, right. So That's right. What, what do you think? I know it's a really difficult question, David. Maybe you could ask me some questions, but what happened to me? Like, why was I able to quit very quickly reading books and then other people find it really difficult and believe the story that they need it needs to be so painful and so challenging yeah yeah i i I don't know really but i had the same experience when i was a resident we had a hypnotist show us you know a, a group hypnosis demonstration and and it wasn't anything fancy just had us close our eyes and then asked us, is there something you, you want to change, some habit or something? And I've been smoking about a half a pack a day for a year of these Indonesian cigarettes that had this super great clove-type smell. It was to die for. They smelled so good. And he started talking about um, thinking, instead of thinking of all the dangers and bad things about being a smoker, think of all the, the great things about being a non-smoker. And you'll have clear air and clean, fresh breath, and you'll have better uh, running ability and greater stamina, and, and you'll be able to say, I, I, I did it. 
and 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 things and things like that. I'm making all this list of positives, and then he said, like, now with your fingers, you'll notice your right finger will jiggle if if, if you're ready to stop smoking now, and your left finger if you've decided not. And then both fingers will go up if if you're a little unsure right now and need need a few more days until you decide. And I, I think my my right finger went up, and then he kind of woke us up. It wasn't a real trance or anything. And I never smoked again after that day. And it was just a sudden thing. And I never had any withdrawal effects. I never had any cravings or or anything. But I think that motivation is huge in, in all the addictions. I don't think it's so much a matter of techniques as, as a matter of deciding if that's if that's what you want. And that's when I'm working with habits and addictions now. I, I list all with the patient all the reasons not to change, mm. all the reasons to keep drinking, the fabulous things of drinking as much as you want whenever you want. And then we make another list of how sucky and awful it would be to stop drinking. And then we make a third list of what your drinking shows about you that's positive and awesome. Like uh, it's a spiritual thing because the Dalai Lama said happiness is the, the purpose of life. And so when you're drinking, you're creating happiness. So you're doing something spiritual and you're kind of a rebel. You're a bad boy and you're saying, I don't have to follow the mores, and I don't have to behave properly, and that's a beautiful wildness in your spirit, and all of those things. We come up with like 25 overwhelming reasons to to keep drinking. Then I say to the patient, like, well, given all all of this, I I have no idea why why you'd want to quit drinking. Do I have techniques to help you quit drinking or help you lose weight? Oh, absolutely, I do. Uh, And and it could happen fast, but... uh, I'm not convinced we should do that. Why, why should we do this? So I put the patient in the position of convincing me, and I play the role of their subconscious resistance. And I found that that, that that creates a lot of power and prevents a lot of failure because the failure in the treatment of addictions, just like the failure in the treatment of depression and anxiety, is the result of the therapists who try to help the patient. In trying to help someone with the procrastination or habit or addiction, almost always leads to failure, but but now it becomes the therapist's failure because you didn't help them stop drinking so they can keep drinking happily and the failure becomes yours. And so I, I, I've, I've just gone much more heavily in all of my treatment in, in the direction of acknowledging the patient's resistance and showing the good things about the patient's re- resistance. And that has really transformed my, my, my clinical work uh, because I'm, I, I'm no longer trying to help people against, against their will. I'm going to be uh, very vulnerable and open here and share something that may be a problem in the industry is um, when I am trying to figure out if a client or not is a good fit, we're a good fit for each other. So pre, pre-signing up to work together, David, mm-hmm. there are many times in the past, not now, many times in the past where I've been working through the voice of resistance and I've realized that they're not ready. They're saying they're not ready, Yeah, but I've, but I've still taken them on as a client because I have a business to run. Oh yeah. Right. Conflict of interest. Sure. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. Today I am brave and bold enough and courageous enough and, and in integrity enough to be like, okay, this is, you're not ready. You're yeah. not ready. 
And then, and then that is like, for me, that's like the ultimate form of the voice of resistance because yeah. they're, 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 sometimes right. they just disappear. And other times they're like, what do you mean? I'm not ready. I'm totally ready. Let me prove yeah, you. That, that's right. So either way you win. If they go, then you're not in the unethical position of trying to force someone to do something against their will. And if they say you're empowered and they become empowered to, to change. But very few therapists know how to do that or are willing to do that. And they have this idea. It's an addiction, really, that I have to help the patient. I have to go where the patient is at. I can't make the patient accountable. I can't make any demands, demands on, on the patient. And they take great pride in the therapeutic approach that's, to my way of thinking, most of the time doomed to failure. But the, the approach that you just described, which is, is really fantastic, is so much more powerful I could see, David, where I was showing up in the relationship trying to be the hero. And yeah. every time I try to be the hero, I was making them a bigger victim. Which yeah, is, right. It's ridiculous because obviously what I want them to do is realize their power. Like, and to yeah, right. Realize they got it within them. Not me. I'm just, I'm just a guy lighting a few lights and hopefully they can yeah. grasp onto some of them. So, so I think like for therapists and coaches, it's so important that we do so much work on ourselves and oh, evolving, yeah. you know, and standing in our integrity when we're working with people. Well, you're glowing. You look like you've done some fabulous work on yourself because <laughs> you seem really happy and joyful. I love seeing I'm that. In the best, I'm in the best shape of my life right now, mentally, physically. Nice. Wow. Um, so what you're talking about there really is resistance, becoming the voice of resistance, which is like really important work. Touch upon that a little bit in a minute, but I have, do have one question for you. When I go there and I follow your lead and I say to them, well, come on, let's create this list of, of um, reasons why drinking alcohol is so great, okay? Yeah. Sometimes I get feedback that that triggers them to drink. So they'll, they'll say to me, yeah. I felt triggered to drink afterwards because of that. Like, yeah. have you come across that before? Yeah, that can definitely happen. So you have to be be real careful, and every technique isn't going to be appropriate for every individual and every and every kind of problem. Problem, and if you're not sensitive to a lot triggering for someone with with an addiction, and being sensitive really to everyone you're working with, techniques that may be offensive to them or or any ineffective to them. That's why I think it's great to have so many, so many techniques available. So if this direction isn't working, well, we'll come in from this other direction. If the patient wants to change, wants to recover from depression or anxiety or develop a more loving relationship or whatever it is, defeat a habit or addiction, we'll, we'll get the job done. I like that. That's really useful for coaches and therapists and people who are trying to help people to listen to that, that's really important to avoid the cookie cutter approach. And I know sometimes when I've written to you, David, like there's a very cookie cutter approach about some of the emails I send. It's like, give me the answer, David, give me the yeah. answer to solve all of humanity's problems. And, and you're, you're always answering me in a really wonderful, witty way. It's yeah. Like, uh, Lee, everybody's, uh, I don't have the answer to that one, I'm afraid. Um, but also really important to the people listening. To Actually, I do know the answer to that one. Go on, give it to me. No, there's a surcharge for that. <laughs> <laughs> I like, like, I have people within my community and they're like, what's wrong with me? Nothing's working. And it's just a question of, well, we just haven't found the right way to kind of help you yet. 
like yeah, that's right passion and exactly yeah so many different variables in it so you know con- concentrate a little bit more on resistance because i in especially in in addiction you know so we were just talking on our marco polo group this video group people saying i'm doing the work i'm doing the work and i, I don't know what's happening to me and I, and i keep thinking to myself but when I'm in a conversation with you, I, I feel like resistance is blocking you from getting deeper to do the work, which is the, which, which why you need the skills of a David Burns or the skills of a, a Jill Levitt to be able to facilitate and help you go deeper. So talk a little bit about resistance for a, for a few minutes, if you don't mind, because I think it's important. Well, on the, on the overview, there's eight common forms of resistance. Uh, there's Two that are associated with depression recovery, two forms of resistance that are associated with uh, anxiety recovery, two that are associated with, uh, I wouldn't say recovery, but, but healing a, a bad relationship, developing love from a bad relationship, and two that are associated with habits and addictions. And the two for each of those four targets are called outcome resistance and process resistance, which sound, I guess, to a lot of people like big, big words, but they're real simplistic. Outcome resistance means part of you doesn't want a good outcome. You're you're in treatment for your excessive drinking or your overeating or your depression or your troubled relationship or or your depression, but a part of you really kind of wants to to hang on to that. And the, the, the outcome resistance for depression is totally different from anxiety, and that's totally different from relationship problems. And that's totally different from habits, habits and addictions. And I'll say what those four are in a second, but process resistance means, okay, I want to get over my depression, but I don't want to do what I have to do to recover. Or I want to get over my panic attacks or my public speaking anxiety or my shyness, but I don't want to do the thing I'm going to have to do to, to be cured or to recover. Similarly, relationships, uh, the process resistance is, you know, there's something you're going to have to do to develop a more loving relationship that you're not going to like at all. And with habits and addictions, process resistance means there's something you're going to have to do. Now, let's take it from the bottom up. The outcome uh, resistance for habits and addictions means that you're going to have to give up something that's intensely pleasurable for you, something that may be right now your only source, source of happiness. And, that, and, and that's the outcome because, you know, why would you want to give up the only good thing in your life, which is eating? You love to eat and you've got a rotten marriage and a rotten job, but boy, you you, you love to, to eat. And uh, that's not something that, that, that people want to give up. Mmm, that glazed donut in the morning when I pass my favorite bakery. Oh, that's, that's, t- oh, that's the purpose of my life and then and then the process means not only do you have to give up something that's intensely pleasurable that you feel entitled to then you're going to have to do something sucky like dieting and deprivation and and exercise some people love to exercise i hate to exercise some people get a runner's high all i get is a runner's horror I hate running, but if I want to lose weight and be in shape, I've got to go out there and, and run, even 
if I don't want to, I've, I've got to do some reasonable consistency on, on that and, and cut down on your diet. So that's outcome and process resistance for relationship problems, for your, for your personal example. Uh, but, but that outcome resistance is, you know, when I'm in therapy, people start talking about somebody they can't stand. And so a lot of therapists think, oh, you want a loving relationship with your sister. You've been pissed off at her since you were little girls. You say she's always criticizing you and giving you these unfair criticisms and you tell her she's wrong and she doesn't listen. Now, are you asking me to show you how to have a better relationship with your sister? Because I've got powerful techniques or you just want to let me know that your sister's kind of a dud or, you know, kind of a thorn in the flesh. And seven or eight times out of 10, the patient says, no, I'm, I don't want a good relationship with my sister. I just want you to know what a loser she is. And and so that's outcome re- resistance is, you know, the marital therapists and couples therapists tell us, oh, people want loving relationships. But that's not true. Most people don't want loving relationships. They want enemies. Look at the politics these days. Everyone's hating somebody else and they're they're not yearning to get close. Mm-hmm. They, they, they are yearning for some revenge or some putting the other person down. And then the process, that's outcome resistance for a relationship problem. Process resistance is, if you do want to get close to that person, I've got fabulous techniques, but you're going to have to look at your own role in the problem and you're going to discover that the other person is not to blame, that you're actually triggering the very problem you're complaining about. You, you say you're, for example, as a woman told me, my, my, my husband's always criticizing me. She said, why are men like that? And I said, we don't know why men are the way they are. We don't know why women are the way they are. But if, if you can give me one exchange you had with, the husband, with your husband, maybe we'll see, you know, why he's so critical of you. And she, she said, well, he's been criticizing me for 35 years. And I said, well, I just need one criticism. And what, what did he say? And what did you say next? She said, well, just last night he told me, you never listen. And he's been telling me that for 35 years. It's so stupid for him to say that. And then I said, well, how did you respond when he said, you never listen? And she said, oh, I just ignored him. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, she couldn't see that she's forcing her husband to make this attack on her. Now, I'm not trying to come across here as sexist because if the husband had come in asking for help, he would have learned that he's causing the very problem he's complaining about as well. Mm. But the process resistance on relationship problems is is very painful. It's it's the death, one of the four great deaths of the self. And and it's uh the the, the self that wants to blame and, and feel feel morally superior. And then when you look at your role in the problem, as you personally experience, it can be a painful and tearful event, but a, but a beautiful moment. And then in anxiety, the outcome resistance is that you don't really want to stop worrying and being anxious because you think something terrible will happen if you do. And so your anxiety is, is protecting you like a student with the worries constantly lying in a flunk. In, in, in fact, uh, a fellow called me to show you about resistance. Uh, uh, I'll disguise his identity. Uh, you, you, you may think you know who it is, but I'll disguise it so you can't. But he, he got me on my home phone and, and he said he was calling from Texas. And he, he said, I'm, uh, I'm the top college prospect for Major League Baseball. I'm the top pitcher in the, in the country. And they say I may be 
you know, the greatest pitcher of all time. And, uh, but, but I've been panicking because the scouts are coming there. They want to watch me pitch and stuff. And I, I'm so nervous. I, I can't throw a baseball and you've got to help me. And he was very demanding. He says, I've been all over Texas. I've been all over the East Coast going to the, you know, the most famous experts in the treatment of anxiety and no one can help me. And I heard about your book, When Panic Attacks, and you've got to help me. I'm going to fly right now to San Francisco and I want you to treat me, you know, starting tonight. And I said, listen, I, I'm no longer in private practice, uh, but, but, but I have a young colleague, uh, Dr. Matthew May, and he's absolutely a genius. And maybe you can uh, call him and, and you could come out and do an intensive with him. And he says, put Dr. May on the phone right now. <laughs> and I says, I don't live with Dr. May. I'm married. This is my home. I'll give you his office number and you can call him. And then the guy, I got him off the phone. I thought, man, alive, this guy is it's kind of annoying. And uh, then he called back in 20 minutes. He says, Dr. May refuses to answer the phone. Why won't he talk to me? And I said, just leave a message. He's probably with a patient. And, and then he'll, he'll call you back. And then the next day I was uh, talking to Matt. He's a former student of mine. He's now in clinical practice. And uh, I said, Matt, I'm sorry I referred that guy to you. He, he was the most difficult, anxious patient I've ever encountered in my entire life. Is he going to come and do an intensive with you, fly up from Texas? Matt says, no, I don't think so. I says, I'm not surprised. He's probably just too difficult to treat. I said, what happened when you talked to him on the phone? And Matt says, well, I just talked to him for seven minutes, and then he said he was cured. <laughs> and I said, what the heck are you talking about? That guy is the most irritating, annoying, narcissistic. You know, intensely panicked person I've ever come across. And Matt says, well, I just did what you taught me to do. And I said, what, what, what's that, Matt? And he says, well, I just told him. I, I said, listen, could I treat you and make your anxiety disappear? He says, I could do that quickly. But I, don't, I told him, I said, I don't think I'm willing to do that. And then he says, the fellow started saying, well, why not? If you've got these techniques, you must treat me. Why won't you treat me? And Matt says, well, you see, I've seen you on national television pitching and playing baseball, and you've been such an inspiration to me and to, to millions of people, uh, and you, you are fantastic. But it's that inner criticism that has been the key to your success. You tell me you've been uh, worrying constantly ever since you were practically your earliest childhood memory, constantly driving yourself and worrying that you're going to fail. Can I make that go away? I, I definitely can, almost by magic, if you would want. But you see, that's the key to your success. And that's what has given you this blessing of talent that, that you have. You're going to make history. You're going to make you know, baseball history. And, uh, and then the fellow said, oh, Dr. May, you, you mean my anxiety is okay? My self-criticisms are okay? And Matt says, okay, that's the key to your success. That's your strength. Don't ever let your anxiety go away or even diminish. Mm. And then the fellow says, oh, thank you, Dr. May. My anxiety just disappeared. I'm just feeling on top of the world now. But that's, you see, the outcome resistance is, is, is that the patient thinks that they need the anxiety in order to, to, be, uh, to be successful or they, they need their phobia in order to, you know, be safe or, or whatever. And then when you become the voice of the patient's resistance, like Matt did, and you 
let him see how, how beautiful and awesome the symptom is, why, why he's clinging to it. Paradoxically, the patient doesn't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then it's the same with depression, too. There's an outcome resistance, which generally, similar to this fellow, comes from the patient's high standards, you know, criticizing themselves. I'm not as good as I should be, and I'm a failure, or I'm unlovable because my marriage broke up. And, uh, and, and, and that's an, an expression of what's most beautiful and awesome about the person. And then the process resistance is psychotherapy homework. If you want to work with me, you're going to have to do psychotherapy homework. And it's not negotiable because every patient I've treated who did psychotherapy homework recovered. And every patient I've treated who refused to do the psychotherapy homework not only failed to recover, but got worse and typically just dropped out of therapy. And, and so that's process res- resistance. So those are the eight forms of, of, of resistance. And that uh, system of uh, categorizing them and, and recognizing them has been very helpful. It's, it's one of the real breakthroughs, I think, in my own career and has then allowed me to develop techniques to focus on the outcome resistance for depression, the process resistance for depression, the same for anxiety, the same for relationship problems, the same for habits and, and addictions. And these new developments in, in Feeling Great, my, my new book, have really led to ultra-rapid recovery for many patients uh, for the first time. When I was a, a young psychiatrist, I occasionally had people who covered really rapidly, but now I see ultra-rapid recovery in a good 90% of the, the people I treat, at least with depression and anxiety. And now addictions that you're working in are harder to treat than depression and anxiety. But in depression and anxiety, often as all people need is a single, you know, extended session, kind of like what you had, a two-hour session or something in that range. And, and then generally their, their symptoms will disappear. And then you do relapse prevention training uh, so they'll know what to do when the negative thoughts and feelings come back, how, how to get rid of them again quickly. And then it's most of the time it's it's one and done. I'm not saying all therapists can, can do that, or but that the that's what i've seen with with the new techniques and that's why i wrote feeling great so people i think people can pick these techniques up and and use them on their own that's what i'm hoping what do you do with uh or what did you do in the past because i know you're not in um private practice now how would you handle habit and addiction cases where they initially agree to sign up to do the work and then they don't do the work because you get into that dilemma of you don't want to, you want to, you want to, I don't know, maybe ego comes into it, wanting to chase them and yeah. wanting to do the work, but then that's making Yeah, well, that sitting with open hands, I think, is so important. And, and when that happens in the area of depression, which is where, you know, I've had vast experience more so than in the area of addictions. But if I, I have the patient, you know, again, sign a kind of contract that, that if I, if Dr. Burns accepts me into his clinical practice or here at the clinic, I agree to do psychotherapy homework. Here's, here's how many minutes a day. Here's how many days per week. And I give them a list of all the reasons not to do psychotherapy homework. And they have to tick off all the ones that apply to them. And I, I really make it clear to them, if you want to work with me, you know, this is not negotiable. And if, if for any reason you don't want to do homework, God bless you. There's 
tons of therapists in the community that don't believe in psychotherapy homework, and any of them would be grateful to have you as a patient. And so if what I'm proposing doesn't make sense, go and look for what you're looking for. And if it doesn't work, you're welcome to come back anytime. It would be a joy to work with you. But if you work with me, I want to show you how to go from severe depression to joy. And in order to make that happen, you'd have to do the psychotherapy homework. Most of the time, they they stayed. But that was hard for me at first because I thought all my patients would leave me and I shouldn't make them accountable, but it just has transformed my clinical practice to, to to set it up that way. And then if they initially agree, and then it's two or three sessions later, and all of a sudden they stop doing homework, well, then I can show them that contract and, and let's look at all the reasons maybe you've decided to stop doing psychotherapy homework. And I hope I don't lose you now, uh, but, but maybe I talked to you into something I shouldn't have, you know, that you weren't ready for. And, and, and if you don't want to do psychotherapy homework, I would totally understand. And, and uh, if, if you drop out now, you'd always be welcome back. So I never reject the patient. I force the patient to, to reject me, but I, I stick to my guns. Now, let's say they're not doing much psychotherapy homework, but they're doing a little bit. Well, and I would tell them, this is fantastic. You brought me this napkin that you wrote some negative thoughts on probably <laughs> minutes before the session. And, but this is good enough, you know, and this will give us a fantastic session that, that we can work on your negative thoughts. And if I can persuade you to do a little of this every day, you'll be on the road to, to rapid recovery. But most therapists are afraid to make patients accountable. I was talking to a faculty member at Stanford recently. I won't name her name, but she was actually enraged by the idea that I made patients accountable and I make them do homework. And she was saying, oh, I always meet patients where they are. And I know most of them need long-term insight-oriented therapy. You know, she was so proud of herself and so felt judgmental. And uh, it, it, it was, I found it annoying, to, to, to be honest, but, but she was absolutely not going to give up this idea that uh, she, she wasn't going to make patients have to do psychotherapy homework, that she was somehow superior in skill and had deeper, better, better methods. I used to think that way myself for, for, for years. It took me seven years until I finally turned my head around and started making people accountable. What, what worked for me was when we did our work together, and you got me to see that I need I needed to take one hundred percent responsibility for yeah. what's going on in my relationship. You can take that into your practice, yeah, and you can say to yourself, "How did I end up working with this person who doesn't want to do the work when they agreed?" And most of the time, for me, I kind of know at the outset that even though they're signing it, they're not going to do it. But I took yeah. it client anyway, so that's on me. So yeah. I, I need to shore up that leak, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I used to do that all the time, try to save someone. I, I yeah. you know, we, we, I made a list of 50 ways to get patients to do their psychotherapy homework. Some of them were developed by Albert Ellis. Some of them were developed by Aaron Beck, and some of them I made up. And I can tell you, none of those techniques ever worked with any patient, even on one occasion. <laughs> you know, if a patient wasn't going to do psychotherapy homework, I wasn't going to save them. And when I finally <laughs> accepted that and decided 
to make the patient accountable, accountable rather than try to save everybody. It's just the, the whole universe uh, rotated and, and my practice became vastly more effective and vastly more re- rewarding. But uh, it I was, was going to say more rewarding. <laughs> yeah, more rewarding. But it was my narcissism mm. that led me down the wrong road, thinking I was going to be so great I was going to help everybody. And whenever I give in to that impulse, I typically get burned. I'm going through that process of self-realization at the moment, like putting myself in the hero position and yeah. victim, thinking they need me to help save them. It's all bullshit. You know? Yeah. And, and that yeah. is like, it's not good energy. Right. David Burns, it's been a pleasure to meet you. you you've you got me thinking about Christmas and Father Christmas with your beard and stuff. Um, if oh, yeah. If you're listening, folks, this book, Feeling Great, you will learn so much out of this. And if you don't, you can use it as a pretty good weapon if somebody ever tries to break into your house. Um, go to <laughs> www.1000daysober.com to the podcast page. You'll see David Burns and you'll be able to get the show notes and how to get hold of this great book. Uh, David, continue doing the work. Never give up inspiring people. And I hope that this is uh, a stepping stone book to another one that you've got in the future. Never give up writing. I hope so, too. It's always a pleasure to see you as a professional colleague and, and as a friend. It was just, just a delight. Let's do it again one day. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Dave. Bye-bye. Just another reminder, folks, that if you want to work with Lee Davy, that's me, and the rest of the 1000 Days Sober coaching team, then get over to www.1000daysober.com and book yourself a Choose Yourself Call with me or a member of the 1000 Days Sober team so we can see if you're a good fit to take the Strive Method for Addictions course, the Strive Method for Relationships course, or just join the Strive support team. And if you're feeling in a really, really serving mood, please rank and rate our podcast at whatever podcast platform you do or spread the word around social media and tell people to come and listen to us. Thank you very much. Love you all. Bye.